Welcome to the Jesus the Game Changer podcast from Olive Tree Media, hosted by Carl Fays. In today's podcast, Carl's guest is Joe Vitale, Dean of Studies at the Zacharias Institute. Joe has a PhD from the University of Oxford and is talking with Carl about the place of women in Roman society and the early church. Joe, if you were to describe what life was like as a woman in the Greco-Roman world, kind of around the time of Jesus or just before, what was life like then? Well, it was just radically different from what our world looks like today. I mean, it, it partly will depend on the social economic status of the woman. It will depend on whether she's living in the city or the countryside. But basically, with the rare exception of the very wealthy Greco-Roman women, uh, most women just didn't have the autonomy that women have today. So you would either be under the authority of your father or of your husband. And um, part of this comes from the sort of uh, platonic philosophy that you get at that time, where Plato basically argued that women are in every sense inferior to men, whether that's morally, intellectually, uh, spiritually and physically, just in every sense, they're not on the same level. And the way that worked out was that within the, the Greco-Roman household, um, there would be a very strong hierarchy. Uh, so there was this idea that actually um, women as a general rule, shouldn't be allowed outside of the home. Uh, married women would tend to be secluded and it was even worse if you were an unmarried daughter, you would just be kept inside a lot of the time. Obviously that's for the more wealthy. At the other end of the spectrum, if you were extremely poor, then there's a good chance that you would actually have been a slave. And as a slave woman, you're basically the property of your master and can be used for whatever means he would desire, including sexually. And so it's, it's just a really different world. One of the um, a fourth century Greek philosopher, a guy called uh, Demonthenes, actually writes that in that culture, uh, men would keep a mistress uh, for pleasure, they would keep concubines for their bodily needs, and they would keep a wife for children and for the guarding of the household. Let's just say you were getting married. At what age would you normally get married at? And did you have any choice in that process? No, not really. So basically your father would make that decision for you. It, w women would tend, well I say women, they were really girls, would tend to be married around the age of 12 or 13 and often to a man who was actually a lot older. So you can just imagine that the sort of imbalance within that relationship. And, and actually in Roman culture, it so happens that fathers could even break up a marriage if they desired and they thought, actually, I could make a better alliance with another family. So even if you're married to someone, there's no security within that because you may well be picked up and move somewhere else. Let's just say that you decided that something was happening to you as a woman that was just not right and you wanted to go to some form of court. Could you, could you go to court? Um, uh, you just didn't really have the same legal status or standing in any way. I mean, there are a few instances with later in Roman culture where women have a little more say, you know, that they are defended in, in public courts, but on the whole, women just didn't have rights in the same way. In a lot of families, there seemed to be some, from some research I've done that there was a big disparity between the number of women or girls in the family and the number of boys. What was happening there? Did, did, did families actually want girls in the same way as they wanted boys? I mean, if you're a father and you have a girl, basically, I mean, this, you know, this wouldn't have always been the case, but in a lot of instances, she would have basically been seen as a sort of sexual asset. So you're, you're trying to keep her a virgin, you're trying to preserve her virginity because that is what makes her valuable in that culture so that then you can form a marital alliance. And so in that sense, a daughter's useful in that, you know, you can... Um, 
improve your own standing in society but but basically women don't stay within the household so so you don't really desire them in the same way whereas if you have sons they're going to stay around they're going to work for you they're going to improve your social economic status so unfortunately what often did happen at that time was the exposure of infants particularly young girls a lot of babies would have been killed because there just wasn't the place for them within the household either that or you could pledge your children into service or slavery that is in our culture, day and age, that just sounds so barbaric. Yeah. That was just seen as a normal process. Yeah. It, I mean, it basically, it's, it's bizarre to say that. And of course, that, that wouldn't have always been the case. I'm sure there were fathers who loved their daughters within that culture. But it, it really was a, a different a worldview where, you know, it's, you're trying to survive. It's very much an honour and shame culture where, to be honest, often daughters are seen as a worry more than anything for their fathers because you're trying to preserve their virginity. You're trying to make good alliances. And if, if your daughter misbehaves, then you're seen as losing your own social standing. So more than anything, daughters are actually an economic worry. Wow. Into that setting, Jesus comes. Yes. So how did Jesus deal with treat women yeah. around him? You know, I think the more you study the culture of the time, the more astonishing it is the way that Jesus treats women. I mean, he grew up at a time where Jewish men would regularly pray, you know, thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, a slave or a woman. And yet you have Jesus coming onto the scene. And even if you just look at the way he socially interacts with women, it's, it's amazing. I mean, so often these women were segregated and secluded. And yet Jesus not only counts them among his friends, but he's financially supported by them. He travels with these women. And, and you know, even to the point where people are looking at him and he's getting a bad reputation for it. They're saying, oh, he associates with prostitutes and sinners. But Jesus is more concerned about welcoming these women than he is about his own reputation. And um, I think his teaching on the subject is just absolutely amazing. So for example, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you know, at that time, uh, men could divorce women just by writing them a certificate of divorce, almost on a whim, if you will. So they're incredibly insecure in that culture. And yet Jesus says that any man who divorces, divorces a woman except for adultery, uh, uh, for the sake of adultery, is himself committing adultery. And so... I mean, that seems kind of a strange thing to us, but in our culture of today, but actually that's designed to protect women. You know, it gives them a security they would not have had. And a similar thing goes on when you look at what Jesus says about um, whoever looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her in his heart. We, we hear that and we think, gosh, that, you know, that's quite harsh, isn't it? But actually at that time, uh, women who were beautiful were often written about as seen as dangerous seductresses. There are all kinds of texts at that time that really condemn women for leading men astray sexually. You even get a text slightly later uh, written by a rabbi who says it's more dangerous to walk behind a woman than it is to walk behind a lion. Uh, so you, you kind of within this culture and then Jesus comes along and he says that and actually it's just amazing because what he's saying is men, if you're struggling with lust, if you're objectifying women, you can't put the blame on these women. Actually it begins within your home own heart which is just radical actually for that day and age and I think even in our culture today that's that's quite unexpected um, and you know we could just go on there there are so many things we could say I one maybe one other example I give you is just that um again slightly later on you get these Jewish writings that uh, talk about the fact that if you teach a woman the law, then it's as if you've taught her lechery. It's seen as, you know, a terrible thing to educate a woman. And yet you have this story in Luke where, you know, Jesus is in the house of Mary and Martha and Martha's working in the kitchen, which would probably be the place the woman would be expected to be. But Mary is sitting at Jesus's feet, which if you know anything about that culture is a symbol of someone who's a disciple. Paul's described in the same way when he's trained uh, by a rabbi. That's, that's what it means to be a disciple. You sit at someone's feet. And so Martha is quite annoyed by the situation 
situation, there's sort of the implication within the text that she's thinking, this isn't right, you should be back in the kitchen. So she summons Mary away to help her. But Jesus actually stops her and he says, Mary has chosen what is better for her and it won't be taken away from her. And it's just this amazing validation of, of Mary as someone who has spiritual worth, who's seen as an intellectual equal who can learn amongst the men and, and be close to Jesus at his feet. What about with the children? Because then there's several situations yeah. where Jesus welcomes children. And again, is that the same sort of shift in the culture? Yeah, that's right. So children are similar to women. They just didn't have legal standing uh, in the same way. Like we were saying earlier, children could just be married off at any point. Um, but but uh, but Jesus uh, has this amazing story where, you know, the children want to come to him and actually the disciples just going by what would usually be done in that culture, try and, and send them away and prevent them from reaching him. But Jesus stops them and he says, no, let these children come to me and don't stop them because that's whom the kingdom of God belongs to. So you just see this real overturning of, of all the kind of household codes and the cultural expectations. To be honest, every time that you see Jesus interacting with these minority groups like women or children who are usually downtrodden, he's, I mean, I'm hard pressed to think of a single example where he's not doing something taboo and overturning the cultural expectations. Now, that kind of just morphed into the early church, didn't it? Because, yeah. and now these days you have people talk about Paul and Paul's teaching, almost like he's some misogynist. Right. But, but again, in the context of, of that Paul and Jesus and the early church stood, that was a radical shift, wasn't it? Yeah, he's doing, Paul is doing some really unexpected things. I mean, he really, I would say he's just carrying on what Jesus began. So, I mean, even if you look at just the way he, he greets women in, in Romans 16, you know, he's addressing a whole host of women who he calls his co-workers. You have Phoebe, who's referred to as a deacon, and Paul even says she's a patroness of me. You know, or you have Junior, who he praises as someone who's outstanding among the apostles, and his good friends Priscilla and Aquila, who are a married couple who, you know, Paul often is working with. So already you see him interacting in a different way, just this kind of general expectation that women are involved in the work of the church. And of course, you know, we have this amazing vision that he writes that, you know, in Christ, there's, you know, no male or female, but but all are one. And um, and I think often we'll, we'll look at texts and from, you know, because we don't understand the context, they can seem hard to understand. And um, so we look at Corinthians and we think, what is going on in Paul's teaching on marriage? But actually what he has to say about um, men and women within a, the marriage relationship is, is just a real change from what's gone before. So for example, he, he says that uh, not only does a, a, a wife's body belong to her husband, but actually a husband's body belongs to his wife. And, you know, when we're looking at those marriage inequalities with younger women marrying older men, this idea that there might be equal interdependence, if you will, is amazing. And uh, I think particularly people often struggle with Ephesians 5. You know, they look at that text and immediately you look at the line that says, you know, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And, and, and I think we just, you know, we wince at that word submit. It just seems kind of politically incorrect. And, um, but, but of course, what Paul's saying there, it, it, I mean, that's not the surprising bit in that teaching. That's what you would expect in the culture. But what he goes on to say is just amazing. So, so he actually then says, husbands, love your wives as, you know, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And, um, and this whole idea of, of love being a component within marriage and, and that kind of sacrificial love where you would care for your wife as for your own body 
is just absolutely amazing. And of course, within that teaching, he goes on to talk about parents and children as well. And, you know, and he says, you know, of course, you know, children obey your parents, but, but parents treat your children with kindness. And, and, you know, so all of these, these things, I mean, he, he starts with where his culture is, but then he just moves it forwards in a direction that I don't think anyone was expecting. Joe, was this just a short-term change or, or did this kind of bring long-term cultural shift? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. I would say that, that actually there is, there is a definite change in the way that women begin to be treated as Christianity spreads. Of course, you know, it's a slow process throughout the Roman Empire, but you do see a shift within the culture. At the same time, you know, I think it would be dishonest not to say that there are points within Christian history where actually, you know, Christian culture meets the culture of the world and the Christian culture doesn't always win out, certainly within the patristic era, that, that there are some struggles in the way that women are treated I would say, by the church fathers. But overall, you do gradually see a real change in the status of women and the way that they're valued within the family and within the church. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Olive Tree Media seeks to introduce people to Jesus, communicate a Christian worldview, and transform beliefs, attitudes, and lives through media. Now let's get back to the interview. That early, in those early years, it's, it's said that, that women gravitated to the church. You can see why, can't you? That's right. Because of the, the, the opportunity they were given. So did the church grow through women? Is that too strong a thing to say? No, I mean, I think the church grew through both men and women, but I don't think you could claim it was, you know, either one gender or the other. I think, you know, in every aspect, women were involved in the life of the church. I mean, you know, it depends which period of history you want to pick, but so much was going on. And, and often, you know, when we read history, it's written by men and it's often written about prominent men in positions of power. So you don't always hear the other side of the story, but, but you know, whether it's, it's starting with Lydia, you know, who leads a house church in Philippi, right? In, in the early church and moving onwards, you just see women throughout history doing astonishing things uh, to advance the kingdom of God. So, you know, if you want to look, for example, at the women who founded religious orders like St. Clara of Assisi, or, or you could look at women who the Roman Catholic church has now recognized as doctors of the church, like Catherine of Siena. These are women who aren't just doing amazing work as deacons, sort of like among the poor, you know, and caring, but actually that, you know, they also have a public voice for Christianity within their society. Yeah, because I wanted to, to go on to that because I think people often look at religious orders, uh, women in religious orders, nuns, as somehow missing out on life. Right. But but they actually opened up opportunities for them to make a difference where they, they couldn't at that period of time, could they? Yeah, that's right. I think often, you know, we look at examples like, you know, King Henry VIII getting rid of his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and sending her off, you know, to the to sort of abbey. And, and, and you think, oh, gosh, this is just to oppress women. And it's a way of shutting them up and controlling them. But actually, at that time, women just didn't have options. I mean, so many of these women were not even educated and the only expectation is that you marry and you, you have children whereas actually religious orders open up an entire other way of life it recognizes that actually women have this you know spiritual calling as well and it gives women opportunities for an education and women opportunities to to actually you know 
be validated as someone who is equal before God and therefore has a role to play in building his kingdom, whether that's through caring for the poor, whether it's through education. I mean, in so many ways, these women did remarkable things through religious orders. Is, is there a way of saying, or is it too strong to say that religious orders were almost a, a cutting edge of change, allowing women, as you yeah. say, education, opportunity, leadership, change? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I think it's, you know, it's the only place in, in the sort of medieval world, in the Middle Ages, where women actually were, were within a community where they, they had some control and they had a say and they could pursue their callings almost, you know, to their heart's desire. And I mean, if you just take one example of, of the way that women were the cutting edge of, um, of worship during that time. So if you look at the movement of mysticism and that whole movement towards meditation and deeper, more intimate understanding of how God relates to his people. And, and there are these amazing women mystics who were just at the forefront of that whole movement. I mean, I love Julian of Norwich, who actually is the first woman who ever writes in the English language in um, the 14th century. And she's an anchoress, and, which basically means that she um, she's known within her community as someone who is is living by herself, but but people would come to her with all sorts of, of problems and, and they would seek her spiritual guidance. And she wrote this text called Revelation of Love, which is just this amazing kind of theological treatise on, on, on God's love. So, I, you know, that would be one example. Another example of women at the cutting edge is actually during the 16th century Reformation, where obviously you get the dissolution of the monasteries and women leaving the religious orders in some ways, but it's because they, they step out of them and find this new role within the life of the church. So for example, uh, Katarina Zell, you know, he's the wife of a reformer, um, Matthias Zell, or you have um, Argula von Grimbach. Both of these are women who are uh, not only uh, sort of serving in a very public way within their communities, but they're also writing uh, religious texts and they're speaking out on behalf of Christianity within their culture. So often where there's renewal in the church and new movements of God, you see women at the forefront. The same thing happens in the Wesleyan, you know, revivals where you get these women sort of moved by the spirit of God and standing up within those communities and, uh, and just speaking on, on behalf of God. For, coming right forward to now, you know, the culture we're in now, the feminist movement, what, what is the kind of word for the church around women now? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting time to live, I think. I meet so many women who will say to me, oh, I can never become a Christian because, you know, the Bible or Christianity, it's just too misogynistic. The church has nothing to offer to offer me. And it just makes me so sad because I have to say that as a woman who's who's grown up within the church, actually, I, I just think I found a freedom there that I don't see anywhere else in our culture, a freedom from being objectified, from being seen as, you know, just a sexual object, a, a freedom to become, you know, who God has called me to be in, in every aspect of life. And it's not about meeting cultural expectations of what society says I I have to do, but actually, you know, it's, it's about who does God call me to be. And I think actually within our time, more than ever, women are being encouraged into that. And, um, and I think it's partly because of, you know, where our culture is at, but I also think culture is where it is today because of, you know, the influence of Christianity. So the two are, are interrelating, but I also think that we're at a time where we can increasingly have access to and study the culture that, that Jesus lived in and that Paul was writing. And I think the more that scholars are studying it, the more they're actually realizing, gosh, this treatment of women is radical and it's being applied to the church today. Yeah. If we were to ask you, so how is Jesus a game changer? Mm. How would you say in this area, how is Jesus a game changer? Yeah. So, I mean, I just think Jesus takes 
the biblical worldview that obviously in Genesis begins with this idea that men and women are created equally in the image of God, but he takes that idea and, and he lives it out in such a way that, that it applies to every area of society. And, and I think you can't look at the life of Jesus and not see this amazing affirmation of the dignity and the value of women who at that time were downtrodden and oppressed in so many ways. And, and I think that that really has infiltrated culture. You know, sometimes these change takes a long time, you know, it takes sometimes hundreds of years. But I think where we are today are all our ideas about, you know, equal human rights and, uh, and, you know, the world that we live in today owes so much to, to the way that Jesus lived and the way that he originally treated women. Yeah. So I think he, yeah, he has changed the game. And, and I think even if you look at issues that our culture is struggling with today, so for example, um, there's still a horrible amount of sexual slavery in our world and human trafficking um, and, and, you know, the rise of pornography and this, this whole idea of, of women being objects rather than persons. I think Jesus radically speaks to that. And even in, you know, that line I said about what he says in the Sermon on the Mount that, you know, whoever looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her in his heart, that speaks to our culture today and says, hey, women are worth more than that. For you personally, how is Jesus the game changer for you personally? Yeah, you know, it's it's been a real journey for me. I grew up in a Christian home and I think as a child I used to, you know, look at all these male biblical heroes and I'd sort of struggle with where do I where do I fit with that? I even remember as a teenager praying, God, why did you make me female? Why am I not male if if you can't use me? But actually over the years, the more I've looked into the way that Jesus treats women, the more I'm just amazed. I mean, he just, there's no instance where he interacts with a woman where he's not doing something unexpected, where he's not dignifying them and valuing them. When I look at Jesus, I see a man who I actually want to spend time with. You know, in him, I encounter a God who I would say sees me better than, than I see myself and who loves me better than I could possibly love myself. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to support the radio, video and podcast ministry of Olive Tree Media, you can donate online at olivetreemedia.com.au and click on the donate button in the top right corner. We accept both tax deductible and non-tax deductible donations. Thanks for listening. Support.